Why, hello there. This isn't our normal opener. <laughs> Sorry about that. Little brief explanation of what's going on here. So as we launch into episode 25, and I am about to release it to our early access audience on Patreon, I have come to realize that I made a mistake on next time's episode when I did my recommended thing of the week, every other week. I recommended something that is relevant to when this episode comes out and will have been in the past by the time that that episode comes out. So here we go. I'm just going to give you a mild spoiler for next time's recommended thing. My recommended thing for episode 26 is to at least tune in on YouTube to the Project for Awesome live stream, which will be happening on February 25th through the 27th, 2022. Episode 26 comes out on March 8th. So obviously I messed up my timing just a little bit. So the Project for Awesome is specifically listed as online creators decreasing world suck. What it really is, is a charity drive led by Hank and John Green and their foundation to decrease world suck, which gives money to places like Partners in Health, Save the Children, and last year, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, This Star Won't Go Out, Planned Parenthood, The Ocean Cleanup, Equal Justice Initiative, The Trevor Project, The Good Food Institute, and many, many others. There's a further explanation of this in episode 26, why I suggested it and what makes it so great. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and throw back to episode 25, which is the one that you came here to listen to in the first place. And I hope you all have a wonderful day, a wonderful next couple of weeks, and check out the Project for Awesome on YouTube. Have fun. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts. Will and Phoenix, let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 25, Traveling by Map, where we will be looking at chapters 50 through 52 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the long goodbye. If by chance you are new here, congratulations, you found a two-year-old podcast that is... A third of the way through a book. Hope you like The Wise Man's Fear. Also, each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian from most of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week and wrap things up with seven words from the book and our own lives. Before we begin... Let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, as I stated before, we assume that you have read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and anything else to do with the Kingkiller Chronicle, there will be spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love to explore. All right, so with all that out of the way... It's time for us to do the 45-second recap. It's your turn this week. I've got my timer ready. Are you ready? I think so. The goal? No raspberries. I really hope you get raspberries on this one. In three, two, one, 
Go. Quoth, who has actually managed to take a hint for once, takes time off from the university. And now he's bored. What a perfect opportunity for Shep to swoop in with an offer for a potential patronage. Quoth immediately says yes and spends the rest of the section saying goodbye to his friends and his teachers. And then he boards a boat. 20 seconds. Well, sorry, 20.78 seconds. Not bad. No raspberries, unfortunately, for you. Fortunately. Uh, I think it's better viewing for uh, our friends on YouTube if you have raspberries. For all seven of the people who have watched any of them? Yeah. Yeah, them. Anyway, moving on, let's go ahead and talk about our passage today. So we start off with chapter 50, which is called Chasing the Wind. So it starts off with Kvothe really not knowing what to do as his normal routines are completely upended. He doesn't have the medica or the fishery to occupy his time, and he doesn't have access to the archives anymore, so that's out. And his friends are moving on with their lives. Well, I want to point out something. We have now had two depictions of what the midwinter pageantry is like. One was super depressing in Tarbian, and one is half a sentence. I'll say that the depiction that we get of the pageantry in Tarbian is especially depressing because of Quoth's perspective at the time. Right. Now it's a fun, light way of spending his time with his friends. And all it says is, the midwinter pageantry was wonderfully distracting. And without the worry of work and study, I was free to enjoy myself and spend time in the company of my friends. For someone who takes such pride in performance... And that's all he has to say. I think there's a lot of hand-waving and montaging here to get to the fireworks factory, so to speak. Yeah, this does kind of remind me of the Muppets, where they literally traveled by map. There's a lot of segments in this passage that have that feel to it. It's a transitional passage. This is him transitioning out of his old way of life into this new set of adventures that are completely different for him. You know, he's going from a place where he's known, where he's comfortable, where he knows all the players, to someplace where he really doesn't. And I think there is a little bit of narrative expediency where, yeah, he could spend a lot of time talking about all of this, but it would get in the way of really hammering home what he's going to be dealing with going forward. It definitely has the feeling that I remember from a lot of midwinter breaks when I was in college, where basically the first week of February would be a break period between Jan term and spring semester. And it was very odd. You'd have people who stayed home and were going to be coming back in the next couple weeks. And you had people who were at school the entire time. So you got the chance to really spend time with your friends if they were around. And I remember also there were periods where, you know, a friend would take a semester off and they'd have that experience of all of their friends who'd been hanging out with them are now busy because they have school and jobs and all of the other things that go along with student life. And they were suddenly kind of on the outside. It could be a lonely period. I can really empathize with where Quoth is here. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He hasn't really made a plan. He never makes a plan. Well, and he doesn't even have an end point. He doesn't even have an objective. So it can be very difficult to know 
what to do with yourself after you get bored of the revelry. One thing I'd also say is that my experience with a very hectic and cram-packed schooling environment, you can make yourself so busy that you don't have time to think. And then once you have time to think because there is a void of things to do, like summer break or after graduation, you just go, wait, what? And it's jarring and it's weird and everything floods back in that you've been ignoring for however long you've been heads down in your school books. Ah, I know that for me, I wanted so badly to just do all those things that I'd put on the back burner. And then by the time that school was on a break, I didn't have the energy to do any of them. And then once I did, I was just so, wait, 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 but I, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what to do with myself. I, I, what, huh? And it's just weird. So the other thing about Quoth's break is that it's not really truly an absolute break from all of his routines. It just gives him more opportunity to go into Emre and hope that he finds Denna. Even though he knows that the last time he heard from her, she was in Yil. But also, it just feels like such a toxic spiral to be in. I mean, the good news for Quoth is that he does have some good friends that he can spend time with in the form of Stanchion and Diok and Threp. One last little thing, though. Even Davy got out of Emre. It kind of feels like this is the time to, if you have the means, go get some warmer weather. Go to Florida. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Like, winter is really fun when you're in early December and the first snow has fallen. But then when you get to, like, January, February, where the temperature is just cold, you haven't gotten any new snow. It's just icy now. And it's dirty and gross and slushy. Yeah. The bad winter. <laughs> The stuff where all of the pageantry has been taken down and it's no longer bright and colorful. It's just gray and ew. And all of your grand celebrations are done so you don't have midwinter celebrations like Christmas or Hanukkah or anything to tide you over. All you've got is just this long slog knowing that you're not going to have any paid holidays until May. Aww if you're lucky enough to even have that holiday. Yeah. Or paid holidays. Yep. So, yeah, we can definitely understand where Quoth is coming from here. He's looking to find some semblance of normalcy. He's also a little bit depressed. He says something along the lines of, Threp was there, but you could really tell that he didn't really want me around. Like, he was offering to have me come around and have dinner over at his place, but his heart wasn't in it. And I honestly think that that's such a disservice that Quoth is doing to his friends because he's assuming that he has no value anymore because he is no longer pouring himself into the university. I think he's also taken a lot of those criticisms that he's received regarding his behavior during the trial and everything that led up to it. And he's internalized them to an unhealthy degree. And so now he's projecting that I'm persona non grata attitude onto everyone that he meets. You know, it's possible that Threp does want him to come around, but he also is 
maybe just kind of going through the motions because he's kind of tired of being rejected for it. Right. When has Quoth ever actually gone to Threp's home? Never. Absolutely never. And Quoth hasn't said, hey, it's because I only own two shirts. He just keeps saying no. He hasn't given Threp an opportunity here. And so because he's shot Threp down so many times, Threp maybe isn't as uh, enthusiastic about it anymore because he assumes he's just going to continue to get shot down. Precisely. I think he may be reading some tea leaves that aren't there. He also talks about, I mean, I could leave, but where would I go? I could go try to find Denna in a completely different city. Spoiler alert, he will later find Denna in a completely different city. Not Yil. I can really empathize with where he is right now. Like, this is that feeling of after you graduate from college, and if you don't have a job lined up, there's a big question, what next? And it's not an easy answer. I know that feeling really well. I graduated without a job lined up, without really knowing what I wanted my next career to be. And it was a scary time. You know, it was a whole bunch of half-hearted job applications, just hoping that someone somewhere would find use for me and not think that I was overqualified and continually getting shot down. It can be very sad. It can be lonely. And, you know, especially as you have that feeling like your friends are moving on with their lives and you're not, you're kind of stuck in neutral. It's a lonely place to be. And so that he has a few friends who can at least keep him company it's a blessing. Now, we come back to one of the reasons why I absolutely love Patrick Rothfuss's books. He writes such beautiful things, even when they are mundane. Days passed, and I sat idle as winter slowly withdrew from the university. That imagery, that idea of winter receding... Frost left the corners of window panes, drifts of snow dwindled, and trees began to show their first greening buds. And what I love about this is if you ever watch some of the older cartoons where it goes from season to season and the beauty of winter receding and spring coming forth, it kind of reminds me of at least something I think was in Fantasia. Rites of Spring. Mm -hmm. It also reminds me a bit of Bambi, that sort of cyclical feeling that you, know, you have these seasons of life that you go through and each one of them has their own value. But once you've gotten to the point where one has worn out its welcome, that transition to the next stage is always a welcome one. And you can kind of feel that here with Quoth. He's coming out of his own freeze. He's been frozen in an action since he decided to give up his place at the university for a term. He's unsure of what to do, and this is him sort of thawing a bit. He's warming back up to the world outside of the university. And in the way that there is a transition between winter and spring, there is now going to be this transition between the university and Quoth's future. This is one of those, and then, because and then... Threp comes along with the most wonderfully serendipitous offer that Quoth has received in, well, since he got the wake-up call to say, I don't need to stay put in Tarbian. Why do I need to stay here? Why can't I just go and make my own way in the world and 
travel with my own two feet off to Emray. So now he's not stuck here. Nothing's holding him here. And he realizes it once he gets that, oh yeah, opportunity. I felt the same way. So in my last job before my current one, I had essentially run out of billable hours and I was looking for my next opportunity. And when the opportunity landed to move, I realized I didn't have anything really holding me back. There was nothing that said I had to stay in the same job market, that I had to stay in the same city, state, or whatever. I could move. And when the opportunity arose for us to leave the greater Seattle area and move to the Portland area, this seemed like a really great option for us. And so we got to do it because we were in that position. There wasn't anything holding me there, so it was worth a shot. And I'm glad I did it, ultimately. You know, I learned a lot and I grew a lot as a result of that. Getting out of my comfort zone meant I had to sort of build my own new network professionally. And personally. It was a welcome bit of growth. So circling back to the text, here's the request from Mayor Alvaron of Severin Inventus. He sends this letter to Threp. I know you're knee-deep in poets and musicians out there, and I am rather in need of a young man who is good with words. I cannot find anyone to suit me here in Severin, and, everything said, I would prefer the best. He should be good with words above all, perhaps a musician of some sort. After that, I would desire him to be clever, well-spoken, mannerly, educated, and discreet. On reading this list, you may see why I've had no luck finding such a one myself. If you happen to know a man of this rare sort, encourage him to call on me. I would tell you what use I intend to put him to, but the matter is of a private nature. Here we've got this opportunity for Quoth to really go out, make a new professional network, get acquainted with people in a completely different culture where no one knows him. He doesn't have any baggage. And it's a way for him to really make a name for himself. Not only that, but Mayor Alvaron, as described by Threp, is that he would actually be royalty as in like the king if circumstances in his lineage had happened minorly differently. His family got to retain all of the privilege and wealth, but not the title. And this is important because this is a person that he is trying to give Kvoth to, which would then set Kvoth up pretty much for life if he is able to pull this off. It's not a zero risk opportunity, to be sure. But the rewards are such that, given where Kvothe's station is right now, he'd be foolish not to try. This is one of those things where you're like, okay, that's a big opportunity. Ah. Uh... Oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Well, Again, he doesn't have anything tying him to Emray right now, so that's that's one risk down. If this happens and it doesn't work out right, he can always come back to Emre. He has a place to come back to and he can resume his studies. And it's kind of a no harm, no foul sort of scenario. It won't make his standing any worse. Meanwhile, it has a massive upside in that he has the opportunity to get an extremely wealthy patron who will pay his dues and help make sure that Kvothe always has food on the table and tuition money in his pocket. It also represents a way for him to gain some independence. And status. And not only status, agency. While he is here 
working for the mayor, he has the ability to learn at his own pace. He has the opportunity to make his own decisions, and he has the ability to do things that aren't just assignments. On top of that, though, I know that there's the old adage of money won't buy you happiness, but money does give you agency a lot of times. When you are writing a line of poverty, anything, any sort of indulgence could tip you into a catastrophic failure. And that's a terrible place to live. It leaves you with such economic uncertainty and anxiety. And then fear of being constantly judged for just wanting to have a little bit of relief from that, a little bit of joy. And that's where Quoth has been since his parents passed away, since he was 12 and now he's 16. So four years, but still four years, especially when you're a kid, it's a long time. Naturally, Threp's like, well, yeah, he wants to be able to move fast. And Quoth's like, well, I can leave tomorrow. Trap, of course, is a little surprised by that, but pleasantly so. I think that there is a luxury of time that also comes with that privilege of status. And Quoth just obliterates the expectation. He says, yep, let me pack my bags. I'll see you tomorrow. Let's do this. And that's to Quoth's credit. I think being willing to say, yeah, let's make this happen. Let's move with speed. One thing I do want to point out, though, Threp burst into a wide grin and thumped the arm of his chair and he goes, good, and he laughs and he says, I thought I was going to have to pry you out of your precious university like a penny from a dead shim's fist. And I just want to say this, please, whoever you are that's listening to us, have the courage and conviction to call a friend out for offensive and or racist language. Because I want to like Threp, but if he could just do that, like if that is his normal standard of that's how he acts, behaves, talks, that turn of phrase made me just go, ugh. Yeah, it was a little, uh, mm. Mm. However, as we continue this conversation where Threp is absolutely enthralled by the fact that he's the one that's going to provide this intelligent young man to his acquaintance, the mayor. He says, besides, a young man like yourself would be hard-pressed to find a better patron than a man who is richer than the king of Vint. And Quoth, being as short-sighted as he is, is like, ooh, 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 he can help me find the Amir. Maybe. And, you know, again, Quoth has his curiosities, right? You can't fault him for that. He also is boastful and prideful, as in when Threp was like, I'm going to have to spend all night writing your letter of introduction so that you get the best result that I can possibly get out of this whole thing. It makes me wonder a little bit, though, if he's getting a kickback. Maybe not in so many words, but I think there is a headhunter's fee of sorts. Maybe a headhunter's fee, but maybe also just in status. I make you happy you give me gifts, or what have you. And Quoth is like, well, if there's one thing that I'm well-versed in, it's my own good qualities, so let me help you write your letter. Honestly, though, for the role that Quoth is going for, that's not a bad thing. Nope. 
especially if he gets acknowledgement for having done so. Oftentimes, we're socialized towards humility, which is this idea that we shouldn't speak overly highly of ourselves. But essentially what he's doing right now is writing his cover letter, saying, hey, this is why you should be interested in me to do the job. And you have to have a degree of confidence to do that. And it is not unvirtuous or unhumble to be able to do so. I think oftentimes it's really easy to get so caught up in what your negative qualities are that you lose sight of the things that you're actually good at. And so it is good to know what your positive qualities are. And I say this as someone for whom it is very easy to focus only on the things that I don't like about myself. And so it is not unhumble or disingenuous or in some way bad for Kvothe to want to actually talk about these things. This is good. This is healthy. This is exactly what he needs to be doing. And this is something for all of us to take in mind. The best way that I have to get yourself over the I can't possibly talk about my own good qualities, at least in the short term, is to think about what you would want your friends to think or what you would think about your friends. Because if you would be that kind to your friends, be that kind to yourself. Absolutely. Now, the next day we have Quoth hastily meeting up with Willem and Sim and Ari, who all give him congratulations. Now get out of here. It's a very cursory description of this. Like, all we get are handshakes from Willem and Simmon and a cheerful wave goodbye from Ari, which, you know, for people who have been so critical to Quoth's well-being for the past couple years, it feels like a bit of a disservice. Doesn't it? Also, like, seriously, this whole time, Quoth is a terrible, terrible friend because he doesn't even bother letting them know that he's alive after the events of the end of the section. What in the world? We'll get to that. Then he says goodbye to his professors. He gets a grunt from Kilvin and a request for any ideas about an ever-burning lamp. He gets a long, penetrating look from Arwill and a promise of a place in the Medica upon his return. And then Elksadal is the only one who's actually excited for him. Elksadal is like, oh, awesome. You are doing exactly what I hoped you would do with my advice. What I told you to do with my advice. Well, and he's doing exactly what he sees that Kvothe is needed. Yes. And that's rare. Like, you get the sense that Elksadal is someone who really does want Kvothe to be an adventurer, be someone who pushes his limits and goes out to truly see the world. And he's a little bit jealous that he can't come along. <laughs> <laughs> so next we have Quoth probably half-heartedly looking for Elodin and then settles for leaving a note under Elodin's door, realizing, of course, that Elodin never actually uses his office, so it might be months before he finds the note. <sighs> Packs all of his stuff wax, string, wire, hook needle, and gut, and his clothes into a brand new travel sack, and then looks around his room and goes, wait, I have too much stuff to take in one trip. Uh, this is weird. And as someone who 10, maybe, no, <laughs> at this point, it's 12 years ago, all of my possessions fit inside of a Ford Escort including my, at the time, inflatable bed, I can tell you, like, looking at what 
I've accumulated over the last 12 years. Granted, most of it's shared with you, but realizing just how much more stuff I have now than when I was essentially able to pick up and move all of my stuff in one trip. It's kind of a trip. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it's definitely hard to wrap your head around sometimes how when you lay down roots someplace, you start accumulating things in ways that you didn't anticipate that you would. And Kvothe, who has never had a whole lot of money, has at least managed to accumulate a fair amount of stuff and more than he can carry on his back, certainly. One other thing to remember, though, is that as a kid, he lived in a wagon and his home was modular and movable. So all of his stuff went with him. There's never been a time in Kvothe's life where he has had so much stuff that he couldn't just pick it up and take it with him. A lot of this is stuff that has served him well while he's been at the university. You know, things like his slate that he uses for ciphers. He's got his notepapers for all of his studies. All that stuff is important, but it's stuff that he doesn't really need for this journey. And it's stuff that isn't really going to serve him for this next phase. So he's kind of back where he started, you know, just what he can carry on his back and in his loot case. At this point, we also get him going to talk to Anchor and saying, okay, can you just hold on to my stuff for me? And Anchor is just like, uh, you're currently living in a storage closet. I won't rent it to anyone else because who in their right mind wants to live in a storage closet? It kind of reminds me of how in Best in Show, <laughs> Cookie and Jerry couldn't afford a room at the hotel. So the wonderfully kind hotel manager lets them sleep on a cot in the storage closet. I feel that so hard, though, because it's just like, I need a shelter. And it's not too bad, all things considered. It's clean. It's small. He doesn't need much, but it's been more than he's had in a long time. So... Anchor agrees to keep it unrented and save it for his return and allow him to carry on their old relationship where if Kvothe provides music, Anchor will give him a room. Once he comes back. Next, Kvothe is thinking that he's just about ready to head off to Davies to pay off his debt. And who does he run into? Elodin. Elodin is the sort of person that you always run into when you least expect. So you should always expect to not expect him. Kind of like Denna. And this is where we have a really interesting and deep and philosophical discussion. And of all of the people that Kvothe talks to before leaving, he and then Davy are the two that he speaks with the longest. There's a couple bits in here that I really love. So Elodin says, caution suits an arcanist, assurance suits a namer. Fear does not suit either. It does not suit you. And this is a reminder that regardless of what kind of hero Kvothe is going to be, he can't be one that lets fear guide his decision making. Once he accepts that, he takes a seat on the stone bridge next to Elodin, which is pretty high. Like, it's a long way to the bottom. It's uncomfortably high for someone even who might not be afraid of heights, but who is aware of their own mortality and has recently fallen out of a window and off of a roof. Elodin has pushed him before, in other words. 
Yes. Uh-huh. Literally. And how about you? But I wouldn't necessarily trust that Elodin's not completely cuckoo. So Elodin asks Quoth, why do you think this place here, the Stone Bridge, is a good place for a namer? And initially, Quoth says, well, there's a wide wind and strong water and old stone. You know, Elodin's like, yeah, that's a good answer. Not quite what I was going for. There's more. What else? And then Quoth replies, I don't know. And this is actually one where Elodin is really happy. This is the first time that Quoth has had an answer that Elodin has not out of hand been upset at or dismissive of. Also, this is one of the first times that Quoth has admitted that he doesn't know something. And I think that part of it is that naming is about going to the edges of what you know. So Elodin says, so it's an edge. It's a high place with a chance of falling. Things are more easily seen from edges. Danger rouses the sleeping mind. It makes some things clear. Seeing things is part of being a namer. I'd also like to just put this out there. It also might be like the edge of their world. There might be a way into the Fae or another realm at that edge. There's something there, and I think there's also a philosophical point to be made here as well. When you are in the middle of something, like you are in the absolute thick of everything, the edges are far away and you're just in the daily grind, it can be very difficult to take the time to poke your head up and see where everything really is to see why things are happening the way that they're happening and to actually have a perspective on them. It's when you get to the edges, whether that's a metaphorical or a literal one, you can actually look in and see the why of things, the how of things, the full scope of things. It lets you pull back in a way that you really can't in the center. It's when you're at the edge case, all of those principles have been taken to their logical conclusion and oftentimes in ways that are unintended and undesired but you can actually see how they interact together at that extreme. So I think there's some wisdom here that Elodin is reminding Quoth of. I'd also say that right now, narratively, we're at an edge because we're coming to the end of not only his time at the university, but Quoth's time in Emre and in this particular setting where he is so comfortable and has been in the middle and the thick of everything. And he's finally gotten to a new transition to a new space. I think it's at these edges that it's where you have that opportunity to really examine yourself, to see what kind of person you are, to see what kind of person you want to be, and what kind of person you need to be to be ready for the challenges ahead. And I think it's pretty amazing here. So for the second time in a span of a few chapters... We get the term, they said he was chasing the wind, as a way of describing someone who went on a break from the university. And Elodin asks if Quoth has ever heard anyone describe it as such. Elxadal just said this, just told him the parable of the ignorant edema, and said that the arcanist was chasing the wind. And Quoth doesn't say anything about Elxadol teaching it to him. It's something I would have said. But also, he's non-committal about whether or not he's heard this term. I think he also doesn't truly understand it. Elodin even asks, do you know what they used to say when students left the university for a term? 
he knows the answer. He's not saying it until Elodin is able to sound smart. Meanwhile, Elodin tells us a little bit about the origins of this phrase. So long ago, when all students aspired to be namers, things were different. The name most fledgling namers were encouraged to find was that of the wind, because after they found that name, their sleeping minds were roused and finding other names was easier. But some students had trouble finding the name of the wind. There were too few edges here, too little risk. So they would go off into the wild, uneducated lands, and they would seek their fortunes, have adventures, hunt for secrets and treasure, but they were really looking for the name of the wind. There's a little bit of quoth in all of this. He is looking for adventures. He's looking for secrets and treasures. And I think he's really looking to understand the wind, all of these things, even when he doesn't realize what he's doing. This is a way for him to get out of that very structured and rigid, edgeless world that is the university and really put himself to the test and put his principles to the test and see what kind of person he wants to be. All of this makes Elodin sound so very wise. And I can't help but think of Elodin as almost that Merlin figure from The Sword in the Stone. But I know that he's young. I know that maybe he's 30. I've seen the officially licensed card deck that depicts all of the characters. And honestly, Elodin looks to be about the same age that Bast seems to look. Very similar aesthetic, too. Dark hair, kind of curly, kind of that not a care in the world. And it's so incongruous with my idea of what the character looks like. Now, granted, also, Lauren doesn't look the way that I think that Lauren should look either, because I kind of think that Lauren should look a little bit like Charles Dance or Christopher Lee. I don't know why. They're just the people that I have in my head. Very dour. Yeah. What do you have in your head, though? I think Christopher Lee, typically. Maybe slightly less evil, but definitely Christopher Lee. <laughs> when you're thinking about Lauren. Yes. But I mean, what about Elodin? Elodin, I actually picture my old history teacher from high school who looks very youthful with a shock of red hair. Like when I was there, he had a, a red beard and everything. Even still with all of that, as there is a youthfulness to him, there is also a wisdom to him. That blend of experience and wonder is really how I view Elodin. And that's always my impression of him. One of the things that I really love that Elodin and Quoth have in their exchange is Quoth asks, well, what if I fall? And Elodin's response is, you can learn from falling too, that falling can teach us things. We can get back up from falls. We can learn from them. Oftentimes when we dream, we fall before we wake up and it's the fall that wakes us up. And I think that's also that waking of the sleeping mind. It is that application of things and seeing how things fail that you see how things work. Well, also speaking of falling, their conversation paused as a pinch-faced, dark-haired man walks along the bridge and watches them from the corner of his eye without turning his head. And Kvothe is like, I don't want to think about how easy it would be for him to push me off of the bridge. Thank you. Uh... And I'm wondering if that's significant, because seriously, why that little paragraph, why that passage? 
And then why do we later see the same guy? It's a weird thing that never gets talked about after the Sea Voyage passage. So I'm wondering if it will be hit upon later on. In a different book, perhaps? Perhaps. Anyway, after his discussion with Elodin, Kvothe visits Davy to make arrangements for what to do financially. And Davy's like, okay, this seems cool for you. Are you going to go ahead and just pay off your debt? And Kvothe's like, about that. This is how much money I've got. And then he pours his entire pockets out onto the table. This is how much I'm going to need. And basically all of the money that he has is going to go towards his move, which even when you don't have a lot to move, it is expensive. Absolutely. We uh, spent a lot of money moving from Seattle to the Portland area. And I would like to say to anyone who has ever uttered the words, well, if you don't like it there, why don't you just move? And I would like to tell them that if you're within a small margin of error of how much money you have in your bank account versus how much money it takes to do anything, that just moving from one city to another city or one state to another state or God forbid from one country to another country, y'all can just shove it. Seriously, it's a stupidly expensive endeavor. And if you think you can just pick up and move, nope, uh-uh. It's a lot. And so Quoth goes through what his expenses are going to be. So he needs to buy passage by ship all the way to Severin. He needs to have money for the post in case he needs to send letters back. Spoilers, he doesn't. He needs to also make sure that he's got the ability to buy clothing once he gets there. Right. I mean, ultimately, we don't need to go through his checklist that much. But suffice it to say, Quoth and Davy come to an arrangement where Quoth can give her things that are collateral. So his collateral are rhetoric and logic, which he hates and only loves it because it was a gift from Aventhe. The Thieves' Lantern that he made, which really only has value if Davy sells it to Kilvin, who would buy it just to keep it out of the wrong sort of hands. On top of that, Quoth doesn't want her to sell it to anyone except for Kilvin. And then his talent pipes from the Aeolian, which that's a real status symbol more than anything else. This is where we get to the point with this story where I'm like, that is so that Quoth doesn't lose them. All of this is the very special things like rhetoric and logic, which is made out of paper and the little itty bitty tiny talent pipes that are made out of silver that are a piece of value and the thieves lantern, which is kind of a MacGuffin of its own. All of these things that are super precious to him that he didn't leave in his storage box in his little tiny storage room, they're brought out so that the reader remembers they exist, along with Denna's ring, and so that he doesn't take them on a trip where he winds up in the ocean. They also serve as a narrative anchor that will bring him back to Emre at some point in the future. Hopefully within a year and a day. Because that's how long he has before Davy sells the stuff and Quoth forfeits it all. Davy seems to understand where he's coming from here and recognizes that this is definitely worthwhile 
And I think she also has some respect for him for standing up for his stipulations regarding Denna's ring. Which he states that she may not wear until it is forfeit. And I think in Quoth's mind, if he's defaulted on this loan, it's probably because he's dead. I mean, yeah. That's Quoth's calculus here. I think, though, it is very honorable that, as we will find out by the end of this book, Davy does not actually sell all of his stuff, even though, by all appearances, he did. Well, Davy is also someone who keeps her promises, first and foremost. That's something that we have to understand about her. As vengeful and chaotic as she can seem, she is very much someone who honors any agreements that she has made, and she keeps them in good faith. So moving on, we go to chapter 51, All Wise Men Fear, which is basically Threp giving constant bits of unsolicited advice to Quoth before he can leave. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Don't forget to wash behind your ears. <laughs> like, that's something my mom said to me when I went off to college. Don't forget to wash behind your ears. Yeah. Like, it's something she legit said to me. I'm like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> I remember being told things like that, though. I think that they're just part of the lexicon once <laughs> you become a parent. So... They're on their way to the boat where it's going to take Quoth downriver from Imre to Tarbian. And then from there, Quoth is going to book passage on a ship from Tarbian to Junpui. And then from there, up the river to Severin. At this point, Threp has told Quoth to treat the mayor with respect, to which Quoth is like, why did everyone always expect me to behave so poorly? And then... If you look like you're chasing money, they will see you as provincial. And as soon as that happens, no one will take you seriously. And then he even says, the mayor has told me that he doesn't like gamblers, so don't do that. And just all of this rattle off. Okay, don't do this. Don't do that. Just don't be you. Here are all of these things you need to do, but above all, just be yourself. <laughs> but don't be you. <laughs> I almost forgot. <laughs> and then the last sailor comes along to get onto the boat. And who is it? It's the dude that ran across Stonebridge while he was talking with Elodin. And I'm just like, but, but why this same guy? It's weird. And we will never speak of it again in this book. Probably. I don't think we do. Unless he looks like a different person by that point. And then we get what this chapter and this whole book are named after. Remember, there are three things all wise men fear. The sea and storm, a night with no moon, and the anger of a gentleman. Well, we're going to wind up with the sea and storm soon. So before we get to there, one other thing I'd like to talk about real quick. Threp gives Quoth the letter of introduction, and he stashes it in the loot case. The very special waterproof loot case. With a secret compartment, no less. Which also has a bit of dried apple in it. That part's not important, but I love Quote's reasoning that if you have a secret compartment in your loot case, you should be storing something in there. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was charming and fun. That is very true. I like it. However, I do want to point out back to the three things that all wise men fear. So the sea and storm we've got covered. A night with no moon. 
there is so much tying the moon and Denna and also kind of the moon and Ari together and the night with no moon, the moon being in the Fae, the moon not being present to light your way. There's a lot of symbolism here. Let's keep an eye out on his journeys through the Eld to see if we find any moonless nights, because I have a suspicion we'll run into some. And then the anger of a gentleman. Well, we've mentioned Sim being angry before and that being scary. We also will see that in Quoth's interactions at the court of Alvaron. Mayor Alvaron specifically. I would also put in Stapes. True. He is a very honorable and gentle man that you do not want to cross. I think really what he's getting at is when you find someone who is truly good, when you have seen them get to the point where they are angry, it can be something you don't want to see because that means that some line has been grievously crossed. So moving on, we get our brief journey. And this is really a full travel by map chapter. It's very brief. So we get a quick sketch of the route Quoth's going to take. And he says, so I dealt with storm, piracy, treachery, and shipwreck, though not in that order. I was robbed, drowned, and left penniless on the streets of Junpui, and was reduced to begging, stealing shoes, and then reciting poetry, which should give you a clue as to how desperate I truly was. Yes. And so to make a long story short. Too late. A journey that should have taken 12 days took 16, which all told in this world is not too bad. Right. Also, it's only four more days with all that. That's pretty eventful. And through it all, though Quoth had been afraid that he was going to grow bored of a journey at sea, he never was. <laughs> As a disruption to the normal routines, I think that that was quite well done. It helps us to set a level stage for what's going to happen when he arrives in Severn and doesn't overly burden us with the ins and outs of his journey. All right. Well, now... I think that we should continue on with our routines, and you should talk about your Phronemos. So I picked Elodin. I figured. There's not a whole lot of interaction with anyone that isn't Kvoth or Davy. Or Thrap. Anyway, their conversation on the stone bridge is, I think, Elodin recognizing that Kvoth is on the cusp of a new stage in his life. And I think he's proud that Kvoth is pushing himself. He knows that the university is not where Quoth is going to learn the name of the wind. Quoth needs to go out to the edges. He needs to see the wider world. He needs to experience things that he can't at the university. He needs to expand his worldview. He needs to expand his horizons. He needs to see the world, see the edges. So these are where he can push his limits and he can take risks accept danger, and then truly learn to see things for what they are. Remember, the university is a very sheltered environment compared to what Quoth has ever known. So it hasn't been pushing his boundaries at all. It's been, in fact, kind of constricting them. And so he needs to have this time out in the world. Where he's not as comfortably repetitive. And the other thing here is... He has some wise words about failure and falling. Sometimes falling teaches us things too. In dreams, you often fall before you wake. And this is a reminder that failure is a part of life. 
and that it is something that you can learn from. It doesn't have to be the thing that defines you. There is a tendency to be so focused on success that any failure becomes a defining feature. And that can be a very difficult cycle to break. But if you let the failure be something that teaches you, you can achieve things that no one else would have been able to because you were able to learn those lessons. And the other thing here that I really loved was Elodin's response to I don't know. That's a good answer. Remember that. This is Socratic wisdom. The essence of Socratic wisdom is knowing where you're ignorant. It is knowing that there are things you don't know and that it's okay. It is allowing yourself to be confident without being arrogant. It is about being able to recognize the limits of your knowledge so that you can actually learn new things. And I don't know is an opportunity to learn something later. When we saw the parable of the ignorant edema that Elksadal taught, the point there was of all the things the arcanist claimed to know, of all of the things that had made him proud, the one thing that he didn't know was how to swim. And it never even occurred to him that he'd need to. And so being able to say up front, I don't know how to swim would have saved him a lot of trouble. And he would have been a far wiser person for it. Learning to swim would also be a far more useful skill where he was. And you can only learn to swim if you acknowledge that you don't know how to swim. Absolutely. So that is my Phronemos for the week. I believe it is your turn for the interesting fact. What do you have? You are correct, sir. And since last time's interesting fact was, um, I'm just going to say it, it was a downer. I admit it. Today I'm going to talk to you about something cute. The axolotl. Aw. All right. So first things first, in researching this, I learned a new word. Neoteny. So neoteny is defined as the retention of juvenile features in an adult animal. This trait seems to be most commonly found in semi-aquatic and amphibious animals, like newts and salamanders, of which the axolotl is one. So these adorable little creatures are found in Mexico, mostly in lakes around Mexico City. And even after reaching sexual maturity, they resemble the larvae stage of other salamander species. So of course, humans being humans <laughs> and curious scientists being curious scientists, at the beginning of the 1900s, they did experiments on these little guys and found out that with the right exposure to the right cocktail of thyroid hormones, axolotls can change appearance to make them resemble other adult salamanders, which does include changes to their hearts and lungs, which make them more able to live on land. But the thing is, I'm not really sure I agree with doing such experiments from an ethical point of view. I don't like that that happened. I understand that we learned some things, but at what cost? However, all that being said, I'd honestly prefer axolotls to be able to keep their pink hue and frilly gills and live in peace. And that instinct may even be influenced by the fact that they look so cute and keep their juvenile features into adulthood. As we are hardwired to want to care for baby-like beings and want to protect helpless creatures, including our own young and cute domesticated animals 
and also not so domesticated animals, i.e. foxes and bear cubs. <laughs> like, this is the thing where I have a note that says, see also, cute aggression. So there are also environmental reasons for the axolotl going through a process called pedamorphosis rather than metamorphosis, which is what most amphibious creatures go through instead. And that's where they get their more land form. Axolotls and some other types of salamanders and newts go through pedamorphosis so that they keep their juvenile features and also their ability to live in aquatic spaces. So axolotls live in environments that don't always dry out seasonally. And they have adapted to this by keeping those traits. And that helps them survive life in wet environments like lakes and rivers. While amphibians that go through metamorphosis shed those traits in adulthood so that they can more easily survive on land as their environment dries out in the warmer months. Another fun fact about axolotls is that as long as humans don't come along and fork with their hormones, they can regrow their limbs and tails should they lose them. Of course, I do need to point out that whilst axolotls are prevalent in the aquarium trade, they are critically endangered in the wild because humans are destroying their homes and they're really only found in that one little area of Mexico. So instead of leaving you all with a down note, my last axolotl fact is that in recent years, a lot of asexual or ace people have adopted the axolotl as sort of an ace mascot. And there are a lot of adorable pieces of art that people have made that have the whole purple, gray, black and white aesthetic featuring these little guys. And sometimes they're mixed with some of the other kind of ace symbology, which includes things like cake, dragons and the flag of Denmark. Was unaware that the flag of Denmark played a role, but OK. OK, so the reason for that <laughs> is because approximately 1% of the population is asexual, which is more people all over the globe than the number of people that live in Denmark. Oh, OK. <laughs> Look, I don't know if that was what it was or if there was like a Christian Erickson fetish or whatever, which, OK, whatever. I'm up, I'm on board with that. That's cool. Look, he's our Danish prince. We love him. <laughs> Mildly antithetical to the whole point of being ace, for sure. Although aesthetic attraction is a thing. So... And Christian Eriksen is a delightful human being who is now playing for Brentford. Good to know. We have both told each other things that both of us are like, all right. Oh, cool. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, now, I think it's time for you to recommend something. Yes, it is. So my thing of the week here is the filmography of Christopher Guest. So last week we talked about our nostalgic movie nights and this past week we got a chance to watch Best in Show, which is one of our favorite movies and is one of my favorites in that entire sort of genre because Christopher Guest movies are their own unique thing. They're all mockumentaries and it's a format that he pioneered working with Rob Reiner on This Is Spinal Tap. And that's where you see the genesis of many of the recurring players who show up throughout his films. He also did Waiting for Guffman, and then Best in Show, and then A Mighty Wind. 
While the subject matter and the characters differ, the heart of each one of them is the same, which is the desire for everyday people to put on a show. Whether this is Spinal Tap wanting to sell out arenas and or, you know, amusement park secondary amphitheater stages, or it's the would-be kennel club show, the dog show, or the desire to put on one final great folk act. All of that is built around the desire to perform and show, and it's about that creative impulse that we all have in some fashion. The other thing to remember is that at heart, each of these films has a deep affection for the characters, their foibles and all. There aren't really villains per se in any of these. There is the occasional friction between the characters here and there, but ultimately they're allowed to be complex human beings with their own lives and their own triumphs, and they're celebrated as such. We also get star turns as well as some classic scene stealing from the likes of Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Jane Lynch, Ed Bagley Jr., Michael McKean, Fred Willard, and of course, Guest himself. You know, all of these characters have just one or two scenes oftentimes, and they make an indelible mark on you. Every time I watch Best in Show, I can't help but think of Fred Willard's hilarious announcing. <laughs> just... His commentary is just chef's kiss. It is pure off-the-cuff gold. It is irreverent. It is sometimes deeply stupid in the way that only a really smart performer can be. <laughs> and it's also just absolutely hilarious. Eugene Levy steals the show a lot of times in Best in Show as Jerry. He's incredibly sweet and awkward. And at the same time, you watch him just continually dealing with humiliation after humiliation with grace and dignity, and then ultimately triumphing. And you're never really laughing at him. You're laughing with him in sort of this, oh, I empathize with where you're at. Almost laughing for him. Yeah. Like, the situation is funny. It's also because we know that he's ultimately going to get some measure of success that we see that work. And it also has to be said that Catherine O'Hara is fantastic as his wife, Cookie, who, even as she's the more popular of the two, you can tell has deep affection for him. And that's really what also helps to sell this. These two are improbably in love with one another. There is a human connection within this film that just sings. I think really a large part of that is that all of these characters are weird and quirky and funny in ways that feel natural. Like, you probably know a few people who seem like someone in a Christopher Guest movie. And you might occasionally roll your eyes at some of their affectations and their weirdness, but it's weird in the way that humans actually are. It feels like they just happen to be weird when someone had a camera in front of them. One thing that I'll say is that I have had a news crew come along and follow me around school for a day because I won a scholarship. And at the time I was working on a project that was essentially making stuffed animals out of socks. And I like to have things that I can do with my hands. So I was making these sock monsters in all of my other classes. And they just followed me along, like watching me make a sock narwhal in my history class. And they focused on that, but not why I was doing it. So it just seems very odd and weird. Like, why <laughs> why is this person going to a video game college and making sock monsters? And the end of that story is I was doing it as a 
project for a class where I not only made the sock monsters, but any profit that I got from them went towards donating to St. Jude's. But it was more about finding a project that you're passionate about, executing it, and keeping the class up to date on what you were doing and why, rather than specifically the thing you were actually doing. But yes, so the interviews with me are weird and awkward and watching me do this in the commentary is weird and awkward, but it's a fluff piece. Much like a Christopher Guest movie. These are movies that remind us of what it's like to be a weirdo human being and that it's okay to celebrate that. The weirdos are the ones who are ultimately triumphant in a Christopher Guest movie. They're the ones who get to be celebrated. And so it's okay to be a weirdo. Embrace that. Absolutely. I want to watch more of them. I do too. So that let's move on into our seven words. I had the books, so I'm spoiled for choices here. Yeah, we have Elodin, and that's always seven word fodder. I'm going to go ahead and go down the list here. So I have Denna was still nowhere to be found. Of course. It's nice to have a local patron. Friend may be stretching things a little. An impressive acquaintance. What is he like? No sense losing sleep on my account. Things are more easily seen from edges. They said he was chasing the wind. Elodin gave a weary sigh and continued. But I should attend to business instead. Have you finally found yourself a patron? I have had a remarkable opportunity arise. A thousand miles with some despair. You've already said you have no collateral. But it's worth something, especially to me. A book that's only valuable to you. You can't wear it until I've defaulted. Laughter, land, and love are never bought. We got one straggler we're waiting on. And finally, the one I chose. Several unfortunate complications arose during the trip. <laughs> one that I want to point out is suddenly three quarters of my life simply disappeared which is so relatable to me as someone who went from being in kind of this crunch land to being in like, what do I do with my life mode in the span of a couple of days more than once over the course of my life. So, but I like what you chose because, wow, that's an understatement. Narrative efficiency at its finest here. <laughs> yeah. So you had the words from life. What'd you pick? So in light of the social zeitgeist pointing itself right back at, please stop banning books. <sighs> My seven words are, any book worth banning is worth reading with an asterisk. Read it critically. Because there are some books that have been banned that spread hate. I'm thinking of Mein Kampf. And there are reasons that that has been banned. Though I would say maybe banned is the wrong word and maybe not shared with the general masses due to some rather unsavory ideals expressed. But at the same time, I think that if you are going to read a work critically, and not fall victim to having your worldview influenced by 
something with such vitriol in it, I wouldn't even say to ban that book. I'm just going to go one step further here and say that there is no text that you should read uncritically. I agree with you completely. I mean, we've made an entire two years of our life out of reading three, four something books critically over the course of the last 80-ish episodes, something like that. And honestly, I think that when people say this work is too dangerous for you to read, that's exactly when you should go seek that work out and find out why other people don't want you to read it. And one of the most commonly banned books that I have seen is Fahrenheit 451. And I just want to facepalm so bad. My other big thing is seriously, if you are on a school board or if you know anyone who is, encourage them to read the pieces that they are voting on in terms of what can be shared with the kids or the adolescents that are being exposed to these works, these books. I guarantee you that no one of those people that banned Mouse from the school in Tennessee read Mouse. And unfortunately, I watched a lot of people who thought that they were being smart and discussing how you should not ban this particular book talk about it in a way that made it very clear that they had not actually read it. And honestly, don't comment on things that you don't know about either. I've read Mouse because I had a fantastic teacher at DigiPen and why I will always recommend that general education and liberal arts and all of these subjects that are not practical be available and have people encouraged to take these courses because you don't become a person who can think critically if you are not exposed to things that make you think critically. And my teacher at DigiPen who assigned us mouse in our graphic novel class, I will thank her over and over and over again for exposing me to that book that I didn't know existed until that class was a thing. I like being challenged. I like having my worldview expanded. And I don't want someone to decide that I can't have that because they don't like seven swear words and a depiction of a naked female mouse. Literally why mouse was banned. Ugh. So yes, read mouse. It's a good book. Yeah, but that's not what my point was. And read it critically, read it thoughtfully, and read it deeply. But also find other banned books and read those thoughtfully and critically. And maybe get some for teenagers that are in your life. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 53 through 55 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of first impressions. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough and writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to our podcast, as well as special bonus pods, 
some artwork that I may or may not get done on time, sorry, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. <laughs> All right, you ready? No, I'll probably do that at least three or four more times. <laughs>